0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Mike Bernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard, for another episode of The Corruption Files. Today, we're going to take up a case that perhaps is not as well remembered as it should be because it turns out it was quite seminal in a lot of later developments, and that's the Parker drilling case. So, Mike, first of all, welcome back.
1: Thanks, Tom. Happy to be back and continuing the series.
0: So, Mike, this uh, this case always interested me. Number one, it's a company in Houston, fairly well-known in the energy space, but it had uh, C-suite involvement in the bribe, bribery schemes. The uh, facts and circumstances uh, I was reminded of when I went back to do our research for this podcast are still instructive today. And perhaps most significantly, this was the first case where we saw clear Credit given for the remediation during the pendency of the investigation. And we're going to explore all of those. Um, This case was released on, or the enforcement action was released in April of 2013. Uh, It was a a relatively small amount fine for that point in time a DOJ fine of 11 million uh, plus an SEC fine of just over 4 million. Uh, but the conduct went back literally to the mid-'90s going forward. And the conduct was around – Parker Drilling was an oil rig drilling company, and they uh, had a lot of offshore rigs. And in the early part of this century, oil was uh, going up, so drilling was, was pretty heavy. And Parker had rigs go, uh, rigs going in and out of the country of Nigeria. Nigeria had a tax scheme that if you had a permanent rig on site – It was a pretty hefty tax, but if you had a temporary rig, which was uh, six months or under, uh, largely offshore, you could get a temporary import permit, and your tax bill was much, much less. Parker bought a company called Mallard, which had rigs operating uh, in and around Nigeria, and that's really where this story starts because it appears that uh, this underlying purchase There was no due diligence from the compliance perspective. There was no look at the agents. There was no look at sort of the tax regime these rigs were under. And that was in 96, and Parker continued to use the same companies to get rigs into this temporary import permit tax regime. That happened until about 99 or the early uh, aughts of this century, and at that point, the Agent that The legacy agent from Mallard said that they could no longer provide that service, uh, so Parker switched over to Panelpina, whom we have talked about previously, and Panelpina was able to get this temporary service, but it was pretty clear from the facts and the criminal information that they were fudging these permits, providing full information, because these rigs were staying in Nigeria longer than six months. So under the correct regime, you had to leave every six months and come back, or you had to get an extension. Well, after a couple of years, it turned out that Panopina could not get the temporary permits. So Parker solicited and received advice from an unnamed outside U.S. law firm, identified that way in the information, and that law firm recommended a new Nigerian agent. That recommended agent had no experience in the energy space, had no experience in the tax world, was known as a, quote, fixer, end quote. And that agent was able to, with the help of fraudulent filings from Parker, uh, continue the tax abatements through the tax import uh, regime or the temporary tax import permits that, that Parker was able to obtain. That happened for a couple of years and then the government of Nigeria uh, decided to take a look at the tax regime and they instituted a tax import panel in '02. That tax import panel found that Panopina had violated the taxing regimes and was going to pro- or proposed an assessed fine of $3.8 million. Well, that's when the fixer came in. And the fixer started fixing. And the fixer fixed by bribing Corrupt Nigerian officials, both in the tax panel, the tax department, or the tax uh, function in the country, and all the way up to the president. And they did this through funding directly from Parker. Now, the, uh, or the, the money came from Parker, I shouldn't say directly, but it was funneled through the law firm. In about 2003 or 2004, uh, interestingly, Parker Drilling Finance Department picked up these funds which were being sent to the law firm, without an invoice and without a contract, and without a description of services, and said under Sarbanes-Oxley we can't do this anymore. We need a description of services and we need an invoice. So the corrupt law firm began providing invoices and services and sim- with the simple description "legal ser- for legal services rendered." Now these were not five or ten thousand dollar invoices. They were as high as three hundred fifty thousand. They were multiple one hundred thousand. Uh, dollar invoices, but the invoice payments had the desired effect, and that was uh, that uh, with the bribes pay, they were able to reduce the overall tax assessment from $3.8 million to $750,000. So that's what led to the enforcement action. There's a lot more to unpack, but I wanted to stop there and, and maybe get your take on this bribery scheme and, and see if you think it's still relevant really for compliance practitioners to study today uh, yeah
1: no and, and I think um, and to answer that, that second question first it, it is certainly still relevant I think we'll, we'll probably unpack some of that as we go along here one of the one of the things that stood out to me at rereading the the documents the charging documents in this case you know I, I had remembered this as tied to the Panalinaa settlement and, and all of the you know the, the tide water and transocean and and uh, Shell, Nigeria settlements that went along with it. And part of the reason I remembered it that way is that I, it still says that it's related to Panopina, that, that this investigation came out of the Panopina investigation. Um, but it's, it's a little bit different, right? Because the Panopina-related uh, cases really were, as you described, Panopina maybe bribing customs officials to avoid this this import tax or to you know accept these fudged documents. The focus of the, of the information here is really on the efforts, not on Penopino, although that sort of created the mess, but the efforts of, of this uh, referred to as the Nigerian agent, um, the fixer, as you said, to reduce the fine that this special panel that was set up was going to levy on Parker drilling. And, and I think you mentioned it was 3.8 million is what, is what they were going to, to levy after the, the Nigerian agent. Did his work? uh, They reduced the fine to seven hundred fifty thousand. So it was a, you know, basically a three million dollar savings for Parker drilling. So that stood out to me. I just kind of misremembered that, and it it does create a a slightly different situation. Another situation, I think, where we're talking about not obtaining or retaining business, but but of of obtaining an improper advantage, and in the language of the FCPA. The other thing that that, you know, given my position, that really stood out to me was the involvement of this outside law firm uh, in the scheme, really, here. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, the, the, all the payments are routed through the law firm. The law firm introduced the agent to uh, Parker Drilling as, as a potential solution. The law firm provided his bio, which, as you mentioned, didn't reference any particularly relevant skills uh, for the job. Uh, and Parker Drilling, of course, didn't, didn't do any additional due diligence. It's just not a fact pattern that you see very often. And it's it's another kind of interesting fact pattern to consider for compliance professionals as you're as you're looking at risk areas and um, looking at areas that you would you know typically consider to be very low risk or or, or, or no risk. Uh, just a reminder that, that maybe there is no such thing uh, as as low risk or no risk. And then you know I think the final thing that stood out to me is you know when you look at this even the criminal information which was which is for a substantive uh, uh, violation of the Uh, anti-bribery provisions of the FCPA, it reads more like a books and records uh, case in a lot of ways, right? The focus seems to be on the fact that uh, they're paying these amounts of money. They didn't know what was happening with the money necessarily, although it's sort of alluded to that there was entertainment involved, but the information is not specific about what actually happened with the money. But what they are, what they do focus on is that, you know, you have all these sort of fake, very very obviously fake invoices or, or invoices that don't accurately describe where the money's going very poor internal controls at the time. And so it does read more like a books and records case. I think, if I remember correctly, the SEC did charge them with a books and records violation. Um, But it's interesting to me that they landed on a substantive anti-bribery charge when when it it certainly reads more like a books and records charge.
0: And that probably relates to the next fact, which I really should have mentioned uh, before in my recitation, which was we had CEO and general counsel involvement, direct, C-suite involvement in this, and at that time, I thought this it took this case really to a different realm, and and that may have been one of the reasons the um, DOJ was so excised in this matter. But Mike, there was even though this started in '96, I really felt like the bribery scheme still had relevance for today's compliance professional uh, because clearly uh, M and A was a part of this. Or lack of M and A due diligence, and as you you pointed out, was the lack of substantive due diligence on the agent, uh, the final agent they use. I was very intrigued that internally Parker Drilling's finance department picked this up in the context of SOC certifications. So it shows I think that we've all speculated as to what led to the explosion of FCPA enforcement in sort of 04 to 08, and and some people. Th- Think it's it's requirement under SOX that finance could go and say we now have to demonstrate uh, documented evidence to back up our payments, and that that was one of the reasons, or maybe others such as national security or others. But this is really a, a case is a great example of showing how SOX and SOX certification drove compliance, and that's certainly still with us today. And for me, document, document, document was my monitor then, and it still is. And I really saw that in this case as well tied together with the point you you brought up, which is it's not simply a quid pro quo of a bribe to get a contract. It's to gain a business advantage. And here the business advantage was exactly that, a a tax ruling or a reduction of a fine and penalty. It was so significant that, like I said, it went all, all the way up to the CEO and general counsel. So we had, I thought some lessons that we can still draw upon and compliance officers can, can even use these lessons in, in board training or, or other training. It shows the the power of internal controls uh, when you either create them or, or first put them in place and use them effectively. And uh, I'm probably going to rue that I said this, but perhaps there is something to certifications. (laughs) And if you put sub-certifications in place that roll up the evidence of an act that was in compliance with your internal controls, uh, and then you certify the internal controls were effective, perhaps it certainly uh, was one of the factors in this case, and perhaps I've had other internal audit specialists advocate to me that SOX was very important for their profession, and maybe CCO certifications will find out the same thing, although, like I said, I already feel bad that I said that. But we we, we saw it in this case, so I thought that that was really interesting as well. But I'd like to turn to the remediation, or excuse me, the fine and penalty, and in context talk about the remediation. And I'm going to go back to the DPA itself. Early on when I started in my compliance career, I was fascinated by the fine calculations because I thought this was – I don't want to say – opaque, but certainly difficult to figure out precisely how they got to a specific amount. And there's a formula under the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines with an offense level, base offense, value benefits received, culpability scores, number of people in an organization. And then there's a discount, and that discount is given for the following, quote, the organization fully cooperated in the investigation and clearly demonstrated recognition and affirmative acceptance of responsibility for its criminal conduct, end quote. And you can receive up to five discount points from that. Well, here Parker Drilling received two, which tells me they didn't meet all of the requirements under this section. We don't know what they didn't meet. I'm going to explain later why I think uh, remediation was given credit for, but there was no self-disclosure in this case. It's not clear whether uh, there was extensive cooperation or at what point there was extensive cooperation and where somebody finally got the message. But the DOJ was not satisfied with the conduct of Parker Drilling uh, as reflected in the sentencing guideline formula. But the sentencing guidelines then give you a multiplier, and that multiplier gives you a range of fine and penalty from a low to a high. Well, here, Parker Drilling with no self-disclosure, with unclear what the cooperation was, received a 20% discount. And I will have to tell you that many of us in 2013 scratched our heads a long time because we could not figure out how Parker Drilling got 20% off. It was actually there in black and white, but we'd never seen it before, so we didn't know exactly what it meant. And the DOJ and other commentators later explained that it was – the remediation, and it was the extensive remediation, and at that point, we typically didn't remediate during the pendency of an investigation. We waited till the end. Well, Parker Drilling hired a guy, and I'm going to name him because I've heard government officials name him. His name is Dan Chapman, and I have heard them say at conferences, he came in and put together a best-in-class compliance program during the investigation which literally blew the socks off of the investigators to the point where they credited uh, significantly that remediation in the form of a discount. And about six months after this, the then-head then head of the FCPA unit spoke at the ACI National FCPA Conference, and he talked about this uh, discount. And I didn't attend the conference, so I called him up and asked him, where did this come from? And he, he kind of shyly said, I guess we didn't explain that very well in the DPA. But he walked me through their decision-making process, and it made a logical sense, and it made intellectual sense. And for the first time, I understood there was real credit to be received. And I introduced that, or I use that as a long introduction to asking you how that, in your mind, may have formed the basis of the FCPA Pilot Program, the FCPA Corporate Enforcement program and all, really all the way up to the Monaco memo today.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I, you know, I, I was actually going back, at, as I was doing the research for this podcast, went back and was looking at some prior DPAs and, and plea agreements, uh, and, and you see, you know, sometimes it's even less clear than this, right? They would, they would put, put, just put a number and say, here's the, here's the guideline range, the company agrees to X, which would be lower than the guideline range, no explanation at all as to why that number would be lower and not they wouldn't even put a percentage on it just just here's a lower number that we're going to agree to i think you your point specifically on on your discussion with the head of the fcpa unit and that we, we should have described that better maybe in the in the documents to me that's that's the direction that we went with the pilot program where we said okay if we're going to do this if we're going to if we're going to beyond the credit that's built in already to the sentencing guideline calculation, to companies who do certain things. Let's spell that out, one. And two, let's try to put in place a system that makes it somewhat consistent. It's never gonna be fully consistent because the facts and circumstances are, are always gonna be different. It, you know, the, the purpose of the sentencing guidelines themselves is to try to make things a little more consistent. It doesn't mean they work perfectly, but, but it, it tries to sort of put everything objectively in, in the sort, sort of same frame of reference. And I think that's what we had with first with the pilot program, where all right, if if you do X, Y, and Z, here's what you can expect, right? Or if you fail to fail to voluntarily disclose, here's the maximum credit you can you can get. That was sort of the first sh- shot at it. Let's try to try to lay out these factors to allow companies to understand what they might be getting themselves into, what we expect, and encourage them to do certain things, right? We want to encourage them to self-disclose. Even if they don't self-disclose, we really, we want to encourage them to cooperate and to remediate do all those things. Then when they, you know, once the pilot program showed some success and the next iteration, when they moved it to, to a more permanent policy with the corporate enforcement program, they tried to, to be even more specific because I think some of the feedback they got was, hey, you know, this is helpful, but it's not, you're not fully there. We still have a lot of questions about what we can expect, what kind of credit it, we're gonna get. And so that, that tried to, to to, you know, that iteration had a little bit more detail about what to expect and what not to expect, you know, you're not going to get a declination if, if X, Y, and Z, or there's, you should expect, assuming that you voluntarily self-disclose and do these other things, that you will actually get a declination. And then, you know, I, I think with policy uh, revisions, as we've seen going forward, up to and including the Monaco memo, it's it's really been to sort of tighten this up and offer as as conclusive guidance as we possibly can, recognizing that that no two situations are going to be the same. So we can't give any guarantees as to what's going to happen. Um, But I felt like there was even more of that in the Monaco memo, especially when when, when there was talk about self-disclosure and and, and what to expect if you self-disclose and not having a monitor and all those things. So this was, I think they struck something here with Parker drilling saying, hey, not only is this good to reward companies. But if we're going to do that, let's publicize it so companies know and are are doing these right things that we would like them to do so they can get credit. And then let's try to make it consistent so the credit is consistent. So it does fit together. And and I, you know, I can't I have to do a little bit more research to to point to exactly this case. But it's certainly right around this time when it when it all starts and and kind of moves forward from there.
0: So the other thing, Mike, one of the themes I think we've seen uh, throughout the history of or at least the last 15 years of FCPA enforcement is, not so much an ebb and flow, but a dialogue uh, between the department, companies, practitioners such as ourselves, certainly around monitors, a dialogue around fines and penalties. We had Supreme Court rulings uh, and a a lot in the mix. And the more I thought about it, I really saw this is a part of that dialogue. And that dialogue being people like you and I saying, you know, if we're going to put forth the effort, we should get some credit for it or at least... Don't penalize us more if we go ahead and do it, and and the DOJ actually taking that information, whether to develop that internally or listen to people like us in enforcement actions, or people like you when you're sitting across the table from them. Uh, that was a change, and so uh, we see evolution here. and And I really point to this as this and Ralph Lauren, which I hope we can explore on another podcast, as the the first two where. I, it really showed up in the in the charging documents, uh, or in in Ralph Lauren, it was an SEC complaint. So um, I think this is a, a a long forgotten but a significant case. Going forward, the open question I think both of us have is around the individuals and why there was no individual prosecution. We've never really heard one way or the other. The, the company, to the point, didn't even the company fully funded the defense of the two individuals and never tried to cut them off or anything, but that's really a an open question. But we did have C-suite involvement. And I guess the final message I try to use in this case is the facts were as bad as they get, but if you engage in the proper conduct, at least as the department sees it, you can get significant credit for it. And I thought that was a, a pretty significant message that we still both still carry today.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think, You know it's one thing you touched upon this already but it's one thing to take the steps to implement a program and and to make the remediation in terms of um, we're going to change our internal controls and that kind of thing i think one of the 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 aspects that's sometimes missed is having the right people in place and you mentioned already that they 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 hired dan chapman as the you know as the new cco and from what i understand he brought in a team it wasn't just him he brought in some some really sharp very professional compliance officers into this organization. That's impactful if you if you think about it. You know, as as this process is playing along, you're, you're in discussions with the Department of Justice and the and the SEC. You are every time you're meeting with them, talking about these new, really highly qualified, uh, very sharp compliance professionals that you're that you're putting in your organization. That's impactful, and and especially coming from where it seems Parker Drilling was reading between the lines a little bit in the information. It seems like they had embedded their compliance responsibilities, maybe with the CFO or one, one of the executives that was at fault here had some compliance responsibilities. And so to do a complete 180 on that and, and say, we're going to bring in a, a real prof- compliance professional here, someone with a track record, he's going to build up the team he wants t- to get the job done. Uh, is really impactful b- beyond just the sort of program changes that come with it.
0: So, um, as I said, I really found this case, first of all, I thought it was very instructive for just some basic points MA due diligence, agent due diligence, uh, documentation of agent invoices and services, uh, wire transfers. Some have a second set of eyes on wire transfers over certain amounts. And always remember it's not simply the quid pro quo of bribe for a contract, it's really any business advantage. And here, tax payment reduction or tax liability reduction is seen as a benefit. Uh, So I think that's things uh, that we still talk about today. We have both extensively talk about remediation. So maybe what uh, a final thought or two on Parker drilling? Yeah, I think
1: if, if, and I I use this one a lot, but just sort of doing, you know, a risk analysis uh, of your various operations. Obviously, um, as I sort of alluded to, typically for a U.S. company, their interactions with U.S. counsel is not considered to be one of the higher risk FCPA areas. But when, you, when you're thinking about, you know, the purpose of that engagement, and if it's for fighting a potential legal ruling or a tax ruling in a, in a foreign country, particularly one as Nigeria that has a history of corruption, you gotta rethink the risk analysis in all of it. So um, this is, it, it's one of the hardest things I think for companies, for compliance professionals, is to juggle all these various risks. You're a company like Parker Drilling, you got risks kind of in, in, in various different areas. Um, but it, it's really focusing in on not necessarily just where that, that individual or where that company that we're dealing with is, but what they're doing kind of on each step of the way.
0: Well, Mike, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I look forward to uh, what we come up with next time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Tom. It was fun.